Right? That, that's, the, that's the heartbeat of this text. There, there are other things that maybe we can draw from it here and there, but the, the pulse of this text is that we are received into God's kingdom by grace alone. It's by grace that we are saved, by grace that we have been made citizens of the kingdom of God. It is by grace and not by our merit, our status, our pedigree, our ability, or anything else. It is by grace alone that we have been received by God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'll say this on the front end. This truth should put us in our place this evening. It should humble us. It should help us to see ourselves rightly so that if we think we are something, we would repent and humble ourselves before Christ. And this text, for all who will receive it, should also bring a smile to your face and make you glad for such a gracious God and King who receives the weak, the insignificant, the lowly, the needy, the ones who bring nothing to the table, the nobodies. Our King Jesus is a king of nobodies. That should make you glad, because you're a nobody, just like me. So let the text do its work this evening and humble you and make you glad to be received into Christ's kingdom by grace alone. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you now like children needy and dependent upon your grace and kindness. Please be gracious to us and teach us by your word this evening. Help us to be calm, submissive children who are eager to receive the word of our Heavenly Father. Open our hearts and enlighten our minds by your grace. Teach us humility and childlike faith this evening. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, now before we really dive into this text, uh, I think it's appropriate to address a theological debate that often centers around this text. For those of you who don't know, let me inform you. Uh, You see, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, whom we respect and love very much, will point to this text as part of their case for infant baptism. Right? That's what they do. Right? It's part of what it means to be a Presbyterian. Right? You're going to look at this text and you're going to see infant baptism there. And I just want to say uh, right off the bat that nothing I'm getting ready to say is meant to be mean-spirited or anything like that. Uh, my bookshelves are dominated by infant baptizing reformed people. Right? I have a lot of Presbyterian friends, particularly OPC ministers, right? Orthodox Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church ministers. i got good friends. Uh, we even have a handful of people in this church who affirm the doctrine of infant baptism, but we've allowed to join with us because there are no truly Christian Presbyterian churches in our area. Uh, we love our infant baptizing brothers and sisters, and we affirm them as true Christians, even though we believe them to be in error 
and in need of correction with this doctrine. But with that said, now let me be a good Baptist and give a brief refutation of the idea that this text has anything to do with infant baptism. Uh, Let me begin by quoting Charles Spurgeon when he preached on this text back in the 1800s in a very famous sermon published called Children Brought to Christ and Not to the Font. That is, children brought to Christ and not to the baptismal font. He began his sermon by saying this, This text has not the shadow of the shade of the ghost of a connection with baptism. There is no line of connection so substantial as a spider's web between this incident and baptism, or at least my imagination is not vivid enough to conceive one. Now that is indeed strong language, right? He said, I don't have a good enough imagination to link this text to baptism, right? He's being a little bit of a smart aleck here. Uh, But with that said, I think Spurgeon is exactly right. Uh, To paraphrase him later in his sermon, uh, this text is dry. And what I mean by that is you can read it as many times as you want, and you won't find a drop of water in any of these four verses. It is a dry text. Jesus does not command infant baptism. The disciples do not practice it. And it is not even remotely hinted at in this text of Scripture. Uh, This passage has nothing to do with the sacrament of baptism. It does not mention any so-called family covenant. It doesn't mention any rites or rituals, and baptism is indeed a rite, right? It's a ritual, something that we do. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. This text does not mention the faith of believing parents, right? To, to say that the parents who brought their children to Christ were certainly Christians is, uh, is to assume too much. We'll get into that later. This text does not mention believers and their seed. It doesn't. Uh, flatly put, you will not find infant baptism in this text unless you presuppose it and then read it into the text, right? You have to come to this text as a paedo-baptist before you will find paedo-baptism in this text, I think. And that's what we call eisegesis, where you put something into the text instead of doing exegesis, where you pull something out of the text. And before you tell me, my Presbyterian brethren that are here, before you tell me to slow my roll on this, I want you to know there are even infant baptizing scholars who agree in general with what I'm saying about this text, right? So they'll argue for infant baptism from other texts, but they'll say this one, not so much, right? You can't really find it here. And the two men that come to mind to me whenever I think of that would be R.T. France, the uh, brilliant Anglican commentator on the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. He said, yeah, this text doesn't have anything to do with baptism, and you're stretching it a little bit if you say so. Likewise, R.C. Sproul said the same thing, right? Which made me really happy because I like to agree with R.C. Uh, R.C. Sproul thought the same thing about this. This text does not have anything immediately to say about baptism. Uh, Furthermore, if Jesus wanted us to practice infant baptism in general, this would have been a great time for him to teach it. But he didn't. He didn't. More than that, there is no record of the disciples ever baptizing any infants. It just wasn't their practice, at least not during the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus. You may want to make a case for after Christ's earthly ministry, but there's no record of, them, of the disciples baptizing any infants during Christ's earthly ministry. Um, furthermore, if they were in the habit of baptizing infants and receiving them into the church because of their believing parents, then this text doesn't make very much sense, does it? Because in this text, the disciples send the parents and the children away from Jesus. Right? Or at least they attempt to. So if they were in the habit of receiving children and baptizing them because of the faith of their parents, then this text doesn't make sense. Why would they send them away now? 
Simply put, the disciples did not baptize infants, but they did baptize those who professed repentance, just like John the Baptist did. You can read about this in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The disciples, just like John, did indeed baptize people. They just didn't baptize infants. So then, this text does speak about children, even little children. And it does give us some application in spots to bring our children to Christ and to not hinder them. And it does use children as an illustration for what kind of people make up the kingdom of God. But it does not, in the words of Spurgeon, instruct us to bring them to the baptismal font. Right now, with that said, I've done my good duty or duty as a good Baptist minister. Right, I, I did what I what I should do as a 1689 confessing man. So now let's get into the text and see what it's saying. I've told you what it doesn't mean. Now, what does it mean? Right, what does it mean then? Verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. Now, Mark doesn't tell us when this happened, as Mark just likes to jump into stuff. Maybe it was the same day that Jesus interacted with the Pharisees about divorce. Maybe it was a different time. We're not sure. But what we do know is that parents or at least some adults or even older children were bringing children to Jesus. Probably their parents seems the most likely thing here. And they were bringing them so Jesus would bless them. Right? And I know it says in verse 13 to touch, they wanted him to touch their children. But in verse 16, we read Jesus taking them in his arms and blessing them. So that's what that touch means. Right? To touch the children means to lay hands on them and pray over them. In the parallel account in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, you'll read that that's what they wanted Jesus to do. Lay his hands on the children and pray over them. So to touch them is to pray and ask God to bless them in some way. The touch being symbolic. So these parents, again, they're bringing their children to Jesus so he would pray over them and bless them. And when Mark says children here, he uses a word that can mean a child of nearly any age. Right? Earlier in Mark's gospel, he uses it to speak of a 12-year-old girl. Um, right? so, so again, this, is, this can be an older child. But, to be fair, in the parallel account in Luke chapter 18, Luke uses a different word that means a baby. Right, or a toddler. He uses a different word from Mark. It's an infant. So it seems then, it seems to me at least, that there are probably children of all ages being brought to Jesus in order to be blessed by him. Right? Children of all ages being brought to Jesus to be blessed. And this was actually a fairly common practice in that day and in that culture. Right? It was fairly common that if a famous rabbi came to your town, right? you're Jewish, let's pretend for a minute, and a famous rabbi comes to your town and you have children, it was pretty common that you would take your children out to the rabbi to be blessed by him. Right? So these, these parents, I say it to say this, they weren't necessarily Christians. Right? A lot, again, a lot of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters' arguments about this text having something to do with paedo-baptism hinges on the idea that the parents who brought their children to Christ were believers in Jesus. That is, they were Christians. Maybe, un, maybe, maybe not the most uh, well-discipled Christians, but that they were Christians nonetheless. But I think that that assumes too much, right? In fact, people come to Jesus all over the Gospels just to get him to do something for them, right? And in fact, we have some crowds that claim that he's the Messiah. Think John chapters 5 and 6. This is the Messiah, and then they don't like what he says a little while later, and they abandon him, right? They're not actually believers, a lot of, I would say most of the Jewish people who came to Jesus during his earthly ministry were, did not actually become believers. They came out to witness miracles. They came out to see if they could be healed, but they did not come away Christian. 
So again, I think that that's assuming too much. But what we can say for certain about these parents is that they knew that a well-known, miracle-working, brilliant rabbi named Jesus had come to their town. And so, being decent parents and loving their children, they wanted this holy man to bless them. So they brought their children to Jesus. Now let me stop here and make a brief point of early application. Right? And this isn't even the main point of the text, but I, I would be making a mistake, I think, to not mention this here. Christian parents, or expecting Christian parents even, which by the way, if you're expecting, you are a parent. Your child just hasn't been born yet. Sorry, I misspoke there. But Christian parents, you know more than the parents in our text. You know more than them. Right? They probably, as I said earlier, they probably only knew Jesus to be a famous rabbi from Nazareth who could work miracles, and yet they had the good sense to bring their children to him, to be blessed by him. But you, Christian, know him to be the very son of God. You know more than them. You know he's the son of God. You know him to be the Lord of all things. You know Jesus to be the savior and redeemer of sinners. So Christian, let me ask you, are you bringing your children to Christ? Are you bringing your children to Christ? Now, obviously, we can't bring them to Christ in a physical sense because he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, as we confessed earlier. But in a spiritual sense, we can bring our kids to Christ. We bring them to him in prayer, asking him to bless them, asking him to save them, Asking him to, by his spirit, regenerate their hearts and unite them to him by faith, even in their infancy. We bring our children to Christ by reading the word to them, exposing them to the truth of the scriptures. We bring our children to Christ by catechizing them. Remember those catechisms we gave out? Especially the catechism for boys and girls? If you lost yours, parents, let me know. I'll get you a new one. They're cheap. Catechize your children. Teach them the faith we bring our children to Christ by bringing them to corporate worship. That is, that's church, bringing them here to be instructed in the faith. We, we bring our children to Christ by doing family worship in our homes throughout the week, right? sitting around the table with an open Bible, praying, singing hymns, if you're feeling daring, singing hymns with your family, reading the scriptures, talking about what you read. We bring our kids to Christ by telling them their need for him, that they're sinners, don't be afraid to tell the, even your little ones that they're sinners and that they need saved through Christ or they'll go to hell. Don't be afraid to tell them that, even if they're little. Tell them the truth. We bring our children to Christ by explaining his glorious gospel to them, that though they're sinful, God is so merciful and kind that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life of perfect obedience, die a substitutionary, wrath-satisfying death in the place of sinners, and be raised from the, from the dead on the third day as a proof of his victory over sin, Satan, and death, and as proof that God accepts a payment for Christ's payment for sin, and that they need to believe in him to be saved. Tell them. That's how you bring your children to Christ. So then, Christian parents, let me say again, are you bringing your children to Christ? And if they're too little to understand language right now, are you at least bringing them to Christ by praying for them? Are you bringing your children to Christ? I submit to you that any parent who professes to know Jesus, but does not pray for, pray with, read to, teach, and bring their children to church is either, one, a false professor, not a Christian, Two, 
does not love their children the way they claim to love their children, or three, is incredibly inconsistent and needs to repent and begin doing their duty of bringing their little ones to Christ. And I imagine that the third option is most likely for those lazy Christian parents who will not bring their children to Christ. It's your job, parents. And I've beat this drum a bit within the last year since my kids have been born. It's because it's been on my, or last two years rather, since my kids have been born because it's been on my mind. It's your job, parents. More than anyone else, it is your responsibility to raise your little ones to know Jesus. So say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is, as much as it is in my power, I will lead my children to love and know God. Say that with Joshua. Bring them to Christ through prayer and through teaching them. Bring them so that they might be blessed by him with salvation and entrance into his kingdom. But back to our text. So these parents are bringing their children to Christ, again, to be blessed and prayed over. But the disciples don't like that. They don't like that. Mark records in verse 13, and the disciples rebuked them. That's a harsh word. They rebuked the parents for bringing their children. In essence, they were telling the parents to take their kids and get lost. Right? Go away. Jesus doesn't have time for this. And take your kids with you. Right? Don't forget the diaper bag on your way out. Right? Jesus doesn't have any time for you. What were you thinking bringing these kids to him? Go away. I mean, this is kind of shocking, isn't it, to read this? You'd think that the disciples would be glad that children are being brought to Jesus, that parents have the good sense to bring their kids to Christ. Like, what an opportunity, right? What a good thing. But that's not how they viewed it, apparently. And that makes us ask the question, why? Why didn't the disciples permit the children to come to Jesus? Now, again, they weren't successful. The parents are still there whenever Jesus begins to talk in the next verse. Right? The kids are still there. But why were they trying to keep these children from coming to Jesus. And I think that there are a couple of possible reasons for this, even though Mark doesn't record why. And one is if you want to view the, the disciples in a positive light, and the other one is if I think you want to just keep it more real uh, and, and think culturally. A lot of the old commentators, like I love the Puritans, but they always want to try to view the disciples just as positively as they possibly can instead of just like keeping it real. Uh, so again, the Puritans are awesome. They're right on nearly everything, but it's like they're almost always trying to justify the actions of like nearly every person in the Bible. Um, but if you want to view the disciples in a positive light, here, here's a possibility for you. Uh, maybe the disciples were trying to protect Jesus. Maybe they were trying to protect Jesus. They know he's busy. They see him tired after days of teaching and debating and healing. Right? He's truly human. Right? They, they see him tired, and so they assume, without asking him, that he didn't have time for these children. Right? But, but they were, in their own way, however misguided they might have been, they were trying to help Jesus get a break. So they tell the parents and the kids to go away. And a quick note here, if that's the case, then there's a lesson for us in this, because Jesus doesn't like what they do. They assumed, and they shouldn't have. Right? They assumed that Jesus didn't have time for children, and they were wrong. Jesus has time for everyone who will come to him. Our Lord is not too busy for anyone. He will receive all who approach him. And that's a lesson for us. We should receive all who approach us in Christ's name. Should we not? All. all. Even the people that get on your nerves. 
even the people that you were naturally not inclined to receive. If our Lord receives all who come to him, then we ought to receive all in Christ's name who would come to us wanting to know anything about our Lord. We ought to receive people. We ought to be a church with open arms. But the disciples also, a second thing, they should have asked him what he wanted instead of assuming that he would agree with them. They should have asked him what he wanted. And in the same way, too often, we assume that Jesus would agree with us. Right? You ever do that? Like, yeah, of course God agrees with me. Right? Because you've essentially fashioned a God in your own image. We're all guilty of doing this. But they should have asked Jesus, what do you want us to do here? There's all these kids wanting to come and see you. The parents are bringing them. What do you want? But no, they assume that Jesus would agree with them. And in the same way, too often, we assume that Jesus would agree with us instead of diligently searching the scriptures to find out the mind of Christ in the situations that we find ourselves in. We just assume that whatever we want to do at the knee jerk is what Jesus would have us do. Way too often we assume he's like us, and we end up sinning, when all along we should have consulted him in prayer and scripture to see what he wants from us. So that's the first thing. Maybe, maybe the, the disciples are trying to protect him, and they're just misguided, assumed too much, but maybe they're trying to protect him. Or the second one, and I think that this is more likely, a more likely reason that the disciples attempted to send the parents and children away, you see, in their day, I've talked about this before in past sermons in Mark's gospel. In their day, children weren't valued the same way that they are to us. And when I say to us, I don't mean our culture. Because our culture doesn't value children. In fact, they think it's okay to slaughter them in the womb. I mean us Christians value children. Right? Jesus Christ did more for children than anyone else. Know that, because in the ancient world, children were not very highly valued. That's a Christian thing, I might add. That's a Christian thing, that we value children. Now, I'm not saying that people in the first century hated their kids, right? especially not the Jews. They didn't hate their children. But I am saying that in Greco-Roman culture, which had infected Israel at this point, remember, they're under the reign of the Romans. In Greco-Roman culture, children were not highly valued. They were basically considered to be an economic burden. Right, the, the, the kids couldn't contribute anything to the household while they're still children. Right? Childhood was like not romanticized like we do it. Like childhood was this like annoying, necessary thing that all humans have to go, to, go through before they become adults. Like that's pretty much how childhood was, was viewed by people in the ancient world. But again, the children couldn't contribute anything to the house while they're still kids. The, the kids just take and take without giving anything back into the family. Right. More than that, the mortality rate for children was really high. Very sad part of history, but it's true. The mortality rate for children was high. A lot of children, I read, did not make it to age five. A lot of kids didn't make it to age five. So some families kind of had a policy where you don't get, like, super attached to your child until they get a few years on them. So, again, they're just kind of there. They're not super important until they start getting older. But in many ways, children were considered to be in the way. They didn't have any status. They didn't have any rights. They didn't have any real abilities or way to contribute to society. They were regarded as having little value in the eyes of many in that world in that day. And I think that the disciples maybe had imbibed some of that thinking. I think that's pretty likely. They had imbibed some of that thinking. And so they thought that the children that were being brought to Jesus were basically a waste of time. Here are these needy, helpless Holy, dependent, time-consuming, unimportant 
people who brought nothing to the table to help Jesus. They brought nothing to the table in terms of being able to help with the promotion of the kingdom of God. That's how they think the disciples are viewing them. So maybe they thought, Jesus doesn't have time for this because there are more important people with status and power and abilities that Jesus could be teaching and interacting with. It's more important for Jesus to talk to Bill Gates for a half hour than to talk to these little kids. Right? It's more important that he talk to one of these Pharisees. Right? Because if one of these Pharisees becomes a follower of Jesus, that could really shake things up. So Jesus doesn't have time for these kids. But maybe they even thought that these children would be taking away from their time and instruction with the Lord Jesus. And they believed that they were more important than these kids. So the kids need to get lost. But again, I think that's the most likely thing going on here. The disciples viewed the children being brought to Jesus as being of very little value, a burden, and unable to do anything for Jesus or his kingdom. And so there was no need for them to be brought to Jesus. There was no need for them to come to Jesus because they were worthless. But how does our Lord react to this? Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Indignant. That's a strong word in the original. It means roused to anger, like externally, visibly angry. Right? Like lowly Jesus, meek and mild. Yeah, but not always. He gets mad here. Right? You become indignant when you see something wrong or unjust. And that's what happens here. This is righteous anger from our Lord because his disciples were doing something immoral. Our Lord becomes angry with them because they are keeping the children from coming to him and they shouldn't be doing that. Let's continue on. But when Jesus saw it, verse 14, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. And these words, this, this, this beginning of Jesus' sentence, it's real staccato, like duh, 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 in, the, in, in the original. It, it, it's choppy. Let the children come to me, do not hinder them. He's, he's, he's mad. He's angry with them. He says, don't keep them from me. Don't you dare do that. I want them to come. Don't get in their way. So move. Step aside. Let them come. And Derek Thomas, when preaching this text, he's a very good Presbyterian minister that I enjoy listening to. Derek Thomas said that these words from Jesus teach us something about his character. I think that's true. It's good. Our Lord here looks upon the helpless, the weak, the statusless, the unimportant. He looks upon those who are unable to do anything for him. And he says, get out of their way and let them come. Let them come. Jesus has time for such people. Jesus has time for nobodies. Jesus has time for nobodies. He has time for children. And might I add, in the grand scheme of things, we are all children. Our Lord is a gracious Lord. He receives all who will come. And that's why he says, get out of the way and let them come. So take heart if you consider yourself worthless. Take heart if you consider yourself unworthy. You're probably right. Dare I say it, you're not probably right. You're right. You are unworthy. 
You are because of your sin. You've been rendered worthless. You have no right on your own to come to Christ. You are indeed a nobody. But Jesus bids you to come to him. He bids you to come. Let them come to me. He is full of grace and mercy. Know that about your Lord. He bids you come. But notice that Jesus tells his disciples not to hinder them. This means that his disciples, and that's us, something for us to take from this, ought not to hinder anyone from coming to him. We shouldn't put up any barriers in any way that would keep anyone from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's true in, in general, right? Again, like I said, for the people who annoy you at work, right? The people that you, you come in here and maybe, maybe they come in off the streets and, 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 and they're dirty and they're uneducated and they're poor and they're frustrating because they, right? Like we've all been in this situation, right? Or we've at least all seen this happen even here in our congregation. We ought not put any barriers between them and Christ. We ought to with open arms say, let me teach you about my king. Let me tell you about my king. So we ought not hinder anyone from coming. But I want to especially key on not hindering children, since children are in this text. Right, so parents, teachers, listen, anyone who interacts with little ones in any kind of religious way, I want you to hear me. Especially parents. Especially anyone who wants to be a parent. Do not hinder the little ones. They are allowed to come to Christ. And he bids them to come the same as he bids you to come. He bids them come as well. So please hear me. Do not mock their little questions. I've heard stories of this. Where a little one asks a question. It's a very childlike question. It's one that might make you chuckle a little bit because it's just so, so simple. And Man, I can't believe like, that they don't know this. Don't mock them. Answer their little questions. They want to know. They're thinking. Encourage them to ask more. Don't mock their little questions. And I'll say this too, if you're a person who would mock the question of a child, it's probably because you don't know how to answer it. Because you yourself haven't studied scripture enough to know how to answer them, so you mock them to make them stop. Don't mock the little ones. Encourage them and answer them. Don't hinder them. Don't think that the little ones cannot believe. That's not true either. Clearly they can or Jesus wouldn't bid them come. Clearly they can. Don't keep them from praying. If I ever hear of you keeping your child from praying, I will slap you upside the head so fast. If your child wants to talk to the Lord Jesus, you let them. And you encourage them. And you help them. And you guide them. If they want to approach the Lord Jesus in prayer, you encourage them to do so with everything in, in, that you have. Do not hinder them. Don't keep them from the word. If you're a little one like mine, I always have books and Bibles strewn about the house. If your little one picks up a Bible, sit them down and read some to them. They'll either learn something or never touch the Bible again. <laughs> it's meant to be a joke. You can laugh a little bit if you like. Pick up the Bible and read it to them. Don't keep it from them. Don't think that they're too little. Listen, are they too little to sit down and, and, and listen to you read Romans 1 through 6? Probably. Right? And half of you in here probably wouldn't want me to sit down and read six chapters straight to you either. Right? Although I pray that you would get to the place where you can read the whole book of Romans in one sitting and enjoy it and take it in. 
But yeah, of course, your, your kids aren't able. No, they're not going to deal well with trying to follow Paul's argument through an epistle. But you can sit them down and read them a text like this that's four verses long. Read the word to your children. Don't keep it from them. If they ask you something about the things of God, another one, don't hinder them in this way. Don't think that they're too little to answer. You can answer them. I have a policy in my house. If they're old enough to ask, they're old enough to get an answer. Why do I say that? Because they're thinking about it. Now, you may have to word and phrase things in a way that is appropriate for little ears. But if they're old enough to ask, you answer them. Answer them to the best of your abilities. Tell them the truth. They're not too little to know the truth. Don't hinder them. And listen, don't keep them from corporate worship because you sinfully consider them a burden and a distraction. Bring them here. Let them come. Don't put anything in the way of the little ones. Don't think that they're too lowly or too undeveloped to come to know the Lord Jesus because they can. So treat them like it. Expose them to Christ. Do all you can to bring them to him. Do not hinder them. So our Lord says, let them come and don't hinder them. And then he goes on to say why they shouldn't be kept from him. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now I want to note something here. Jesus does not say to these belongs the kingdom of God. This is important. He doesn't say to these belongs the kingdom. He says to such belongs the kingdom of God. And that's a big difference that a lot of people want to gloss over. Jesus is not saying that all children belong to the kingdom of God. It's not his point. And he's not saying that all children of one or two believing parents belong to the kingdom of God. That's not his point either. There's a different word that he could have used to convey the idea that these children certainly belong to the kingdom. There's a different word he could have used there. But rather he says, ones like these belong to the kingdom. To such belongs the kingdom. Or to put it, put it another way, to people like these children belongs the kingdom of God. So that tells us then that there's something about these children that is an apt illustration for what citizens of Christ's kingdom are like. There's a good illustration in these kids. And given the context, I think that this is Jesus' point. Here it is. Don't hinder these little ones who bring nothing to the table. Don't hinder these little ones who have no status or power. Don't hinder the ones who are weak and needy. Don't hinder the ones who can do nothing for me. Why? Because these are the kinds of people who make up my kingdom. The kingdom of God is made up of nobodies. The kingdom is made up of nobodies. It's made up of powerless people who have no merit or abilities to bring to the Lord Jesus. The kingdom is made up of weak, needy, helpless, humbled, dependent sinners who have come to Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me say it again. Christ's kingdom is made up of a bunch of nobodies who have nothing to offer Jesus, but who have come to him. Those are actually the only kinds of people who are allowed entrance into his kingdom. There are no somebodies in the kingdom of God. It's all made up of nobodies except for the king himself. Now, I want to make a note here. This certainly does include children, doesn't it? 
certainly does. The Bible tells us of some children who are regenerate from the womb, like John the Baptist. Right? Remember, he, while he's in his mother's womb, Elizabeth's womb, Mary, who's pregnant with the Lord Jesus, approaches Elizabeth, and the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb for joy because the Lord Jesus has come near to him. I believe that John was regenerate from the womb. Scripture also speaks of King David, who trusted in God. He says in Psalm 22, again, he's a type of Christ. He's prefiguring Christ. But nevertheless, King David says of himself that he learned to trust God at his mother's breast. He was a little one when he began to trust God. We also hear testimonies of some in our own church. I'm thinking particularly of Ali Chin, who said as far back as they have memory, they've trusted in Christ that they don't remember a time that they've not trusted in the Lord Jesus. That's what we pray for for our kids. Right? We act, we've baptized two children in our church last year, Aslan and Sebastian. I've also met people who say that they remember being converted at age three or four, that they have a conscious memory of, I'm not good. <laughs> but my dad's been telling me that Jesus died for bad people so that God will say it's okay and make me good. It's granted there's some kinks that need worked out there, but he's got the spirit, right? He's got the spirit of things. Jesus died in order to accomplish forgiveness for bad people. He says, uh, it's a pastor friend of mine named Travis Chapman. He says he was three years old and he had a revelation. I'm not good, but God says he'll save bad people. I believe him. The point of this text, I, say, I know I've said all that. Children are certainly in the kingdom of God. Certainly. But the point of this text is not about all children being part of Christ's kingdom. It's not even about infant salvation. That's another question for another time. But it's good for us to note that the children who serve as an illustration here can also very much be part of God's kingdom. Because entrance into God's kingdom depends wholly upon the grace of God and not upon human ability, merit, or works. It's all of grace. And since it's all of grace, children can very much be part of the kingdom by God's grace through Christ. But Jesus' main point here is that the weak, needy, helpless, and meritless ones, it is those who are part of his kingdom. That's what we're to see here. And Jesus actually doubles down on this in the next verse. Verse 15, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So now the lesson for the disciples becomes explicitly clear here. Unless the disciples become like these children in some way, unless they receive God's kingdom like a child, they will not enter it. When Jesus here refers to the kingdom of God, he's referring to the reign of God through himself. The kingdom of God is God's rule through his Messiah. And with that rule and reign of God comes God's blessings to all those who are part of that kingdom. Those blessings having, having been purchased by Christ, the Messiah, in his life, death, and resurrection. The kingdom of God refers to this realm of salvation where there is forgiveness of sins, eternal life, justification, sanctification, new life now in this world, freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, and a new way to live under the lordship of Christ. 
The kingdom of God refers to the blessedness given by God to the citizens of the kingdom, both now and in the future. And this blessedness comes only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you would receive that kingdom, that is, if you would receive Christ and all the blessings that come with knowing him, then you must receive it like a child. You must receive it like one of these children. And how does a child receive things? They just do. A child just receives things. A child has no merit. A child has nothing to offer in return. They have no power. They have no reputation. They can't pay you back, right? You ever had a kid walk up to you and say, I'll give you 10 bucks if you... No, you've never seen a two-year-old do that. They can't pay you. They can't earn it from you. A child is needy and helpless. And Jesus says, if you want to receive the kingdom, you come like one of them. A child just receives things. A child is a passive recipient of the grace and mercy of the parent. Let me illustrate this for you. My daughter is 20 months old. And that breaks my heart to say. She's growing up. She's 20 months old. And she has never done anything for me. At all. She has never earned anything from me. She has symbolically helped me, but she's never actually helped me. She can't care for herself. If you locked her in my house for a week, even though it is fully furnished and stocked, she would die. She can't do anything. How does she receive things? She comes to me and says, Daddy, I'm hungry. And I feed her. She comes to me and says, Daddy, I'm thirsty. You get water for me? And I go and I get her water. She comes to me and says, Daddy, you help me? And I say, yes, baby, I'll help you. She comes to me in my favorite this past couple weeks. Daddy, you do it for me. What a picture of the gospel. Will you do it for me? I can't do it. My God and Father, would you save me? Because I can't do it. At the risk of sounding irreverent, and Abba is translated Father, not Daddy, but it's a good illustration to say, Daddy, will you help me? Because I can't do it. And you know what my daughter does to get me to do those things? It's actually funny. Nothing. She does nothing. Literally nothing. She just receives what I give her like a child. And before she could talk, I just saw what she needed, and I gave it to her, and she just received it. With no merit, with no status, with no ability, as a nobody in the eyes of the world, but a nobody whom I love dearly, she receives everything. My daughter comes to me with nothing needy and with nothing but she believes that I'm willing and able to help her and she passively receives everything from my hand that is how we must receive the kingdom of God like that like a child it's by grace alone we come to Christ with the empty hand of faith and ask him to fill it with life and salvation and he does and I might add if you come to Christ with your reputation in your hands, if you come to Christ with your righteousness in your hands, as we're going to see 
uh, with the, the rich young ruler next week, if you come to Christ with your righteousness in your hands, with your reputation in your hands, with your pride, with anything in your hands, he cannot and will not fill them because you have too much in your hands. You come to Christ with the empty hand of faith saying, Lord Jesus, fill me, and he fills your hands. We come to him dirty and sinful and ask him to cleanse us, and he does. If you come to him thinking you're clean, he won't wash you because you don't think you have any need for him. We come to him with nothing, and he gives us everything. So then, I believe this is how we receive the kingdom like a child. We first recognize that we are nobodies. And we recognize that we have no gift to give God and how we have nothing to pay him back with. We recognize that we are helpless, needy, poor children in need of grace. And we believe that God will help us through Christ, trusting in him to do what he says he will do. We, like children, must depend wholly upon God in Christ to save us and to care for us. That's how you receive the kingdom like a child. You humble yourself and account yourself as a child, laying down all your works and receiving the mercy of God by grace alone. And I want you to catch something here that's so important in the words of Jesus. If you do not humble yourself and come to Christ, recognizing that you have nothing to offer him, if you try to earn something from him, if you try to merit entrance into his kingdom, if you think you're somebody, if you try to do anything but passively receive his grace, you will not enter his kingdom. You won't. Your pride will keep you from eternal life. You will never enter the kingdom unless you become like a child who trusts in God's grace with an implicit faith. So very much we must become like children or we will never know God and enjoy him forever. So please hear me. It is by grace and not by merit that we are saved. By grace and not by merit. May God engrave that on our hearts. But now we come to our final verse that is a beautiful illustration of God's grace. Verse 16, And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. I think this is a sign, a sign and a token to us Jesus took these nobody kids. He took these non-earning children. He put, this, put them in his arms and he blessed them. And they did nothing to deserve it. Nothing to deserve it. He blessed them by grace alone. So please hear me then. To those who come to Christ like children, like these children, our Lord will pick you up, hold you to his chest, and bless you with all the blessings of his kingdom. You will be accounted and made a child of God through humble faith in Christ. You need only to come to Christ with your sin and your need. Leave everything else behind. Bring your sin, bring your need, and come to Christ. Come with empty hands longing for Christ to fill them, and he will fill them with life and salvation. So then, in summary, as I come to a close, the disciples thought that the children were weak, insignificant, helpless, and brought nothing to the table. And therefore, they were not worthy of Christ's time or attention. And in a sense, they were right. But Jesus tells them, unless you start viewing yourselves that way, 
Unless you humbly receive my grace, you cannot enter my kingdom. Jesus' words here are pride-crushing. If we're going to enter the kingdom, we must receive it by grace alone, not by merit, not by having the right worldly status, not by anything we are or anything we've done. We are received into the kingdom of God because Jesus Christ receives us as weak, needy, nothings. But he receives us. So then let us run to him in faith, believing that he will receive us into his arms and bless us because he will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you this evening for this text that points us to your great grace, your unmerited favor by which we are saved. We have earned nothing, but you've given us everything. Lord, I pray that you would crush the pride in all of our hearts, that we would never dare think that we bring anything to the table, that we would never think that we can somehow put you into our debt to save us. May God help us to glory in your grace. We thank you for doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Through Christ we pray. Amen.